This is the Room Now podcast, and you're listening to highlights from the ACR 2020 virtual meeting. Our faculty reporters have been doing videos and recordings so that you can stay up to date. Hope you enjoy these and our panel discussions. Hello, I'm Jonathan Kay from the University of Massachusetts Medical School in Worcester. I'm reporting to you from ACR Convergence 2020, which means that I'm in my office at home and I'm looking at my computer. And I'm going to talk today about a very interesting abstract that was presented in the first plenary session. Today is Friday. And this was an abstract about hydroxychloroquine use and QT interval prolongation in patients with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. This was presented by Elizabeth Park, a third year fellow from Columbia University Medical Center who worked with colleagues, John Giles, Joan Bathon, and Laura Geraldino, as well as several others. Uh, the study looked at uh, QT interval prolongation as a result of the COVID-19 data, which suggested that patients with COVID-19 treated with the combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin had QT interval prolongation. Uh, rheumatoid arthritis patients have been treated with hydroxychloroquine for decades, as have patients with systemic lupus erythematosus. So Dr. Park and her colleagues looked at two rheumatoid arthritis cohorts, one that had been established at Johns Hopkins Arthritis Center when uh, John Giles and Joan Bathon were there, uh, and then a second cohort that they established at Columbia University Medical Center when they arrived in 2011. They also looked at a cohort of patients with lupus uh, that had been evaluated uh, with EKG screening at Columbia University Medical Center between 2015 and 2019. All patients met ACR classification criteria, either for rheumatoid arthritis or for systemic lupus erythematosus, and patients were excluded if they had a physician-diagnosed cardiovascular event or procedure for rheumatoid arthritis or self or physician-diagnosed cardiovascular event or procedure for patients with lupus. Hydroxychloroquine use or non-use was assessed at the time that they had an electrocardiogram, uh, and they assessed variables related to cardiovascular disease as well as to rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, and uh, also assessed whether they were taking concomitant medications that might prolong the QT interval. The primary outcome was the corrected continuous QT interval length uh, with lengths of 440 or 500 milliseconds or longer uh, being categorical cutoffs. And they performed multivariable analysis to look for associated covariates that might be contributing to this effect. The two groups, uh, there were 371 patients between the two uh, diseases who were taking hydroxychloroquine and 159 patients who were not taking hydroxychloroquine. Uh, the groups were relatively comparable, although hydroxychloroquine patients were treated, hydroxychloroquine treated patients were about 10 years younger uh, than the patients who were not taking hydroxychloroquine. And they were also more likely uh, to be uh, taking uh, corticosteroids or statins or low-dose aspirin. The patients who were taking hydroxychloroquine had a lower prevalence of QT corrected interval prolongation 
than those who were not taking hydroxychloroquine. Uh, the patients uh, who were taking hydroxychloroquine, uh, a lower proportion were also taking antidepressants, a lower proportion were also taking muscle relaxants. When they looked at the corrected QT interval, the unadjusted QT interval was higher for patients not on hydroxychloroquine compared to those taking hydroxychloroquine. However, when adjusted for age, race, current prednisone use, hypertension, current smoking, diabetes, aspirin use, and antimicrobial use, uh, this difference in QT corrected interval disappeared and the two groups had comparable adjusted QT corrected intervals. When they looked at clinical characteristics that might be associated with QT uh, interval length, uh, they found that age, current prednisone use, and current smoking were associated with QT interval prolongation. Of the groups, the patients uh, with rheumatoid arthritis, there were 39 patients who had QT prolongation of 500 milliseconds or longer, and 11 of the lupus patients had similar prolongation of the corrected QT interval. However, uh, there were uh, only nine of the 11 lupus patients and four of the 39 rheumatoid arthritis patients with QT corrected interval prolongation were hydroxychloroquine users. Uh, therefore, they could not ascertain any statistically significant differences between users and non-users of hydroxychloroquine. Uh, the conclusion of this study was that they found uh, corrected QT interval prolongation in a small number of patients taking hydroxychloroquine, but there were no arrhythmic episodes or associated deaths among the lupus patients. Uh, there was no QT corrected interval prolongation observed in those using hydroxychloroquine in combination with other QT uh, interval prolonging medications. Uh, and only in the lupus cohort did they find a significant interaction between hydroxychloroquine use and antipsychotic medication use. So uh, this study is a very well done epidemiologic study in established cohorts that found no association between corrected QT interval length and hydroxychloroquine use, at least in patients uh, with rheumatoid arthritis or lupus not taking azithromycin. Uh, this study provides evidence to support the relative cardiovascular safety of hydroxychloroquine uh, in patients with rheumatoid arthritis and patients with lupus and helps to dispel the fear of this complication that was observed in patients with COVID-19 treated with high doses of hydroxychloroquine in combination with azithromycin. This was a terrific presentation by a third year rheumatology fellow with great mentorship from the group at Columbia, John Giles, uh, Joan Bathon, and Laura Geraldino. I congratulate and commend her on her plenary presentation today. Uh, and for more information about this and other presentations at ACR Convergence, uh, please tune in to Room Now. Uh, a number of my colleagues are tweeting on a regular basis, and we'll be filming additional videos uh, with panel discussions, interviews, and other reports from ACR Convergence. Thanks, and I look forward to seeing you again on Room Now.
I'm Jonathan Kay. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm with Room Now. I have a, a Twitter handle of at Janet Burdeau. I'm reporting with Room Now at the ACR 2020, our Convergence virtual meeting. I'd like to talk about uh, something that's really a buzz at the meeting, looking at hydroxychloroquine and whether it prolongs a QT interval or not. So this was a plenary session, abstract 431. It's from Elizabeth Park et al. And that's a large group out of um, uh, Columbia University. And the question here was looking at over 600 patients with rheumatoid arthritis and SLE and asking the question, if patients are on anti-malarials, is there prolongation of the QTC interval? It's important for two reasons. One is the annoying faxes we get from pharmacists that say there could be drug-drug interactions and hydroxychloroquine in the doses we use. Sometimes an alert will come up. So that's the first reason. The second reason is at very high doses, sometimes with azithromycin or clarithromycin and patients who are trialed with COVID, now negative results in those COVID studies on hydroxychloroquine, but there was prolongation of the QT interval. So this was an excellent study to answer that. They did propensity scoring. They had RA and uh, uh, patients and lupus patients. In general, some patients had imbalances on um, some comorbidities such as heart disease, which obviously an imbalance could be important. There were imbalances uh, in uh, the amount using corticosteroids and a few other differences with either adjusted or unadjusted propensity scoring of these patients, it was found very reassuring that hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, the vast majority on hydroxychloroquine did not prolong the QTC interval. And in fact, the heart disease patients um, were excluded as they had active heart disease at the time, but patients with known past coronary artery disease also did not have prolongation of the QTC interval. The next part of the study was to look, are there drug-drug interactions where this could be occurring on the ECGs if there were other drugs that could prolong QTC interval as well? And bingo, no other changes there as well. Take home message is I do believe that this is helping to convince me still that anti-malarial drugs are safe for our patients with RA and lupus and the doses we use and that we don't have to worry about the QTC interval in our patients and we don't have to worry about drug-drug interactions. I appreciate this study. I think it's clinically relevant for us when we practice every day. Thanks, enjoy the meeting and we'll see you at room now. Hi, this is Eric Ruderman from Northwestern University, uh, coming to you for Room Now from ACR Convergence 2020, which interestingly seems to be happening in my basement. Uh, I wanted to talk today about a, a couple of abstracts, one of which is today and one of which is tomorrow um, in, in the psoriatic arthritis arena. And I wanted to talk to you about them, not so much for the, the specific results of the abstract, but actually for some implications that I think are really important as we think about um, new trials and new studies uh, in psoriatic arthritis and in fact in other diseases. 
so, so the main abstract, which is gonna be presented tomorrow is called the Achilles study. And this is a study of secukinumab in patients with Achilles tendinitis who had either psoriatic arthritis or axial spinal arthritis. They looked at uh, 200 patients um, the bulk of which, 128 of them, had psoriatic arthritis and the rest with axial spinal arthritis. And they had imaging and clinical evidence, according to the local site, of Achilles tendonitis. Patients were enrolled in the study and were randomized to secukinumab um, or placebo with the usual loading dose of secukinumab for the first uh, month. Um, Interestingly, the primary endpoint of the study, which is clinical resolution of enthesitis, and that's going to be presented in a poster tomorrow, um, was a negative outcome. And they did not show uh, any significantly increased um, resolution of the enthesitis of the Achilles tendon in the patients who got secukinumab versus uh, placebo, though many other measures of disease activity, including um, sort of overall uh, measures of enthesitis, uh, improvement in enthesitis, a variety of other things uh, did show that secukinumab worked, not surprisingly. Um, but the interesting piece of this, I think, was actually the presentation today. And this was abstract 447, um, presented today in, a, in an oral session in which they looked at the baseline data. And what was particularly interesting was that patients got into this study um, based on having clinical evidence of Achilles tendonitis and an MRI that was read at the local site, either by the rheumatologist or the radiologist, as showing tendonitis of the Achilles tendon. 100% um, of the patients had abnormal MRIs locally, but when they sent those MRIs to be read and evaluated by two central readers, only 56% of them had an abnormal MRI or had a positive MRI for tendonitis. So let me say that again, 56% of them. So just about half actually had what they considered the inclusion criteria for the study. So this brings up a bunch of issues. And, and the first question is, all of these patients, at least as far as we know, had clinical enthesitis as judged by the investigators at the local site. And yet only half of them had abnormal MRIs when read um, by a central reader. And this would suggest that there's a big disconnect between what we see clinically and what we see on MRI. And that's not news. We've seen that before with ultrasound imaging. We've seen that before with MRIs in other location. Um, MRI and other imaging tools tend to be more sensitive. But what I think is that actually the most interesting thing about this was the disconnect between what was seen locally or at least read locally on the MRI and what was seen centrally. And there, it turns out that, again, only half of the patients who had abnormal MRIs when read locally um, still had abnormal MRIs when read centrally. And we've seen this sort of data before. We've seen this before, not in psoriatic arthritis, but axial spinal arthritis, um, where local reads of sacroiliac imaging don't really match up uh, with central reading. And, it, and it's pretty similar numbers that about half of the central reads uh, turn out to be uh, negative, even when there was a positive local read. And I think this gives us um, some pause. And I think that particularly as we're thinking about studies and trials that re rely on imaging as an entry criteria, this study and uh, in the presentation today, uh, Dr. Baraliakos, who uh, uh, was the presenter who led this study, acknowledged this, that in, in studies that use 
imaging as an entry criteria, we really need to have consistent central reading of the imaging in order to know that we're dealing with apples and apples and not apples and oranges. Um, it, it seems like a small point, but I think going forward as we um, get more and more trials and particularly trials that look at comparisons between different drugs, it's gonna be critically important to uh, think about this. And, and so that's my takeaway. Um, does this change clinical practice? I'm not really sure, but I think it does give us some pause as to um, what's really there when MRIs are read locally. And um, it's a totally separate topic, but there's some other interesting uh, papers at this meeting looking at using um, computer analysis and, and machine learning to identify um, features on imaging studies. And maybe that's the way forward. And maybe that the central read could be done by a computer and not by a radiologist. Um, that's down the road and, and that's certainly speculative. Um, but for me, the key takeaway is um, in this study, um, the local reads didn't match up to the central reads and perhaps, and this is also speculative, perhaps had they matched up, maybe it would have been a positive study. Unfortunately, we'll never know that. Anyhow, lots of information on psoriatic arthritis in this meeting. Uh, this is just another tidbit. Uh, I look forward to seeing more and uh, tune into room now for all the information about ACR convergence. The age-old question in rheumatoid arthritis is always about methotrexate and the liver. This is Eric Dine, MD, reporting on behalf of Room Now at ACR 2020, ACR Convergence from Baltimore, Maryland. There was lots of great information from the morning poster sessions today. I wanted to talk about Abstract 0181 by Dr. Choi from Korea. Looked at 92 patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Uh, NAFLD and to see if, uh, if there's a difference in patients with methotrexate uh, that was a risk factor for development of NAFLD. This was a case-controlled retrospective study. The prevalence of NAFLD did not appear to significantly differ across the cumulative methotrexate dose, p-value of 0.9. So what did increase the risk for non-alcoholic fatty liver? The things you'd expect, so triglycerides, Odd ratio for that was almost fivefold, and high BMI odd ratio there being 1.2. Does that answer the question a bit? So they, they say that this the benefit of the study is that it's real world data, but we are subject, of course, to the, the bias of this being retrospective analysis. What made the patients different that were on higher doses of methotrexate? Were their patient characteristics that weren't fully accounted for, biasing the patients that did well on the higher doses of methotrexate without hepatic disease? I think that that is a limitation in my mind, but I, I do agree with Dr. Choi and their team's takeaway take that you should look at the whole patient picture, not just the methotrexate. So we, we treat the whole patient. So if you're worried about the, about the liver, talk to them about their weight, their diet, not just focusing on the methotrexate dosage. This is Dr. Eric Dine. Thank you for your time and look forward to checking back in with you throughout all of the convergence um, meeting and and check into room now throughout the meeting for more information. Thank you. Hello, I'm Rinalini Day and I'm an academic rheumatology trainee from Liverpool in the UK and I'm reporting for room now. 
Um, so I'd like to highlight one of the posters that was presented at one of today's poster sessions um, with a focus on epidemiology and outcomes, specifically focusing on COVID-19. Um, so this is abstract 0006 entitled um, Race and Ethnicity is Associated with Poor Health Outcomes Amongst Rheumatic Disease Patients Diagnosed with COVID-19 in the US. And this is from data taken from the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance Physician Reported Registry, um, authored by Gianfrancesco and colleagues. Um, so as the title suggests, this work really highlights the impact of factors such as race and ethnicity on health outcomes in our patients who contract COVID-19. The study included patients with rheumatic disease and COVID-19 um, registered on the database between March 24th and May 22nd, 2020, which came to a total of 694 patients. Um, so the authors used multivariable and ordinal logistic regression and Poisson models in order to investigate hospitalization, ventilatory support and mortality respectively. So the results showed that racial and ethnic minorities were more likely to experience poor outcomes including hospitalization and the requirement for ventilatory support compared with white patients. And this was even after adjustment for their disease and comorbidities. It's quite similar to the findings um, found in the general US population. And it really puts into sharp focus the health disparities relating to COVID-19 and has wider implications for how we address the needs of the most vulnerable in our society. Um, it also raises the wider question of um, race and ethnicity in infection in rheumatic disease in general, and whether this affects um, adverse outcomes um, with relation to this. And finally, this is just one important piece of work that's come out of the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance um, registry. And it really highlights the fantastic effort of the global rheumatology community in coming together at the start of the pandemic in order to conduct such vital work, um, which has real implications for our patients. And I'm sure we'll be hearing more about it um, during the remainder of the ACR 2020 Congress. Um, so thank you for watching. And um, don't forget, if you'd like to receive more updates as the Congress uh, takes place, um, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Dr. Mindy Day, or you can follow the Room Now Twitter feed as well. Um, thank you very much for watching. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. And I'm at ACR 2020 watching this virtual conference um, for the ACR Convergence. And I wanted to share with you an abstract that was presented at the plenary session this morning. It's abstract number 0433. And basically this abstract was looking at race discrepancy and how um, patients with lupus have a higher risk of stroke and heart attacks if they're black. So this is really important because, you know, the majority of patients who are affected by lupus severely actually are black patients and this only confirms it, but also it identified some novel factors that can contribute to this risk. So this is a Georgia study. It actually was looking at the Georgia lupus registry from DeKalb and Fulton counties, where 50% of the population is African-American, 15% poverty rate and 41% had college degrees. 
And they found 336 patients who had lupus and who actually suffered from either stroke or ischemic heart disease. The average age was about 40, 87% were female, and 84% had hematologic disorders. So that could be anything from um, low platelets, low white blood cells, or hemolytic anemia. And then 66% had arthritis, 31% suffered from lupus nephritis, 14% from discoid lupus, and 9% from neurologic disease. What was interesting about this study was that the greatest number of strokes were found within the second year of diagnosis. And not only that, the greatest proportion of ischemic heart disease was after 10 years of diagnosis. Now there's other studies out there that had mentioned how um, cardiovascular risk is pretty high for strokes and heart attacks even within the first year. What the results of the study found was that black patients actually had a three times higher risk of strokes and 24 times the risk of ischemic heart disease compared to white patients. It's a P-score of 0.007. And the predictors of stroke was being black, having discoid, and also having renal disease. And then the predictors of ischemic heart disease is being older than 65 years, black race, neurologic and immunologic disorders. So this includes um, antiphospholipid antibodies as well as other antibodies. Now, the strength of the study is that this is a population cohort, and it's a pretty diverse cohort looking at the highest risk population for lupus and their complications. They did a really robust cardiovascular screening. They did not account for smoking, hypertension, the traditional cardiovascular risk though, or the use of steroids and hydroxychloroquine. They were missing a few data points. But the reason why I feel that this study was so important is because you know what, most of our patients who have lupus and who are of ethnic minorities, they do suffer from more severe ischemic heart disease as well as strokes. And we have to be aware of that and modify as much risk factors as we can and be vigilant about symptoms that they may present. We need to be counseling them to exercise. We need to be counseling them to uh, lose weight, eat a healthy diet, and then ask those traditional cardiovascular questions like, are you having any chest pain? Have you gotten your lipids checked? If you don't check your lipids um, with your primary care doctor, I think as rheumatologists, that's something that we need to do um, to help our patients. So I hope this gives you a little bit of a perspective in terms of how race affects lupus. Again, this is Dr. Katherine Dow reporting. Please follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope at Room Now. I'd like to talk about abstract 455. This is an interesting abstract because it's talking about reactive arthritis, looking at chronic versus acute. First of all, we and others have published that reactive arthritis is quite uncommon. We think it's decreasing over time. So what this study did was looked at those who had self-limited reactive arthritis and those who were chronic. First of all, the N's are small because it's not very common. And secondly, it is from a database that's looking at seronegative spondyloarthritis um, in uh, Canada. So they had 23 self-limited patients with reactive arthritis and 34 with chronic. And the big differences, no surprise, were those who are HLA B27 positive were more apt to have chronicity. 
But interestingly, and I guess it would go with it, those with inflammatory back pain were also more apt to have chronicity. What didn't go with it was uveitis or conjunctivitis or other features. So I think what's important to implement in my practice is that if I see someone with chronic reactive arthritis and they have inflammatory sounding back pain, I will make sure I follow them more carefully as some of them will go on to need other DMARDs or uh, biological drugs. Um, so something to think about. We don't see it that much, but it still is an important issue in our practice. Thanks. I'm reporting from At Room Now at ACR 2020 Convergence, Janet Pope. Thank you. Hello, ACR Convergence 2020. This is Dr. Robert Chow, and I'm com coming to you virtually from Fairfax, Virginia. Uh, I had the pleasure of reviewing several abstracts today, and I wanted to share with you two abstracts on treatment options for psoriatic arthritis. Uh, as you know, one of the holy grails in treatment of psoriatic arthritis is uh, finding the right drug for a patient's predominant disease manifestation, whether it's more arthritis, enthesitis, dactylitis, et cetera. Uh, the first abstract is abstract 0375. Uh, this is a large cohort of about 1,270 psoriatic arthritis patients, and 50% of these patients had enthesitis with a mean tender anthesis count of around two. Uh, therapies were relatively evenly distributed into three categories, the first being no medications or NSAIDs only versus conventional DMARDs uh, versus biologic DMARDs. Uh, this study did not find a difference in enthesitis resolution in the three drug categories. Uh, there was complete resolution of enthesitis in about 86% uh, of patients, regardless of the medication category. The only statistically significant trend found was gender, with males uh, achieving complete resolution of enthesitis more than females. Uh, furthermore, there is no difference in BMI or age. I think this raises a few interesting questions. Number one being, does enthesitis improve irrespective of treatment? Um, this study would say so. Uh, number two, do we even need a tailored treatment specifically for enthesitis? And number three, I, I think we just need um, more data. And especially I would like to see studies on uh, comparing different biologic DMARDs against each other for treatment of enthesitis. Uh, the second abstract is abstract 0381. This is a post hoc analysis of data pulled from two phase three studies involving 373 patients with psoriatic arthritis on tofacitinib 5 milligrams twice a day, uh, tofacitinib 10 milligrams twice a day, and placebo. Uh, patients treated with tofacitinib had improvement in dactylitis, uh, severity score, and number of dactylitic digits compared to placebo. Uh, tofacitinib 10 milligrams twice a day showed numerically greater improvements in dactylitis severity score compared to five milligrams twice a day. So I don't think the studies, uh, the findings of the study were particularly surprising, uh, but they are in fact pretty reassuring. Uh, it's nice to know that we have another tool in our arsenal for treatment of dactylitis in psoriatic arthritis patients as we continue on our search for uh, more tailored and individualized treatment options for our patients with psoriatic arthritis. Um, so thank you very much for tuning in and please go to roomnow.com for complete coverage of ACR 2020. And please follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks.